Okay, welcome to the AdaptX podcast, where we have conversations with individuals who are building accessible businesses, advocating for inclusion, or excelling in adaptive sports. Our intention is never to speak on behalf of those with disabilities, but give them a platform to amplify their voice and share insights so we can make a more accessible world. Today, we are joined by Dr. Jackie Helios. Jackie holds an MSW and PhD in social work from Boston College and worked as a clinician with at-risk youth and families for 20 years before becoming a researcher and co-founding The Phoenix. As a clinician, Jackie knew the Phoenix's community approach to recovery and healing would transform people's lives and society forever. She has led the organization since 2007, overseeing expansion of the Phoenix to 185 communities in 45 mm-hmm. states. And that might be updated by now even maybe. We'll, we'll touch on that with new communities being activated in Canada, the UK, and several other countries. As Deputy Executive Director for the Phoenix, Dr. Helios oversees research and evaluation, strategy, innovation, and growth. She's an active public speaker who enthusiastically shares what she has learned from developing and scaling the Phoenix's healing community model. In 2013, Jackie presented Transcending Addiction and Rede- Redefining Recovery at TEDx Boulder. Her talk has been watched by nearly a million people and is being shared in university classrooms across the country. Jackie, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Uh, we'll likely focus the majority of this conversation on the Phoenix, but uh, before your time with the organizations, you were a practicing clinician that worked with youth and families struggling with mental illness and substance abuse. Uh, what was the hardest part of that job? Well, watching people suffer and running into challenges accessing the care that they needed. You know, as um, a social worker who was supposed to be working with children, what you often saw is a whole family and a family system that was struggling and suffering. And most of our services are sort of aimed at individuals. And so what I saw was a lot of times folks just couldn't access what they needed. And it's one of those things that really opened up my eyes to some of the challenges in the addiction treatment realm in particular, when you have a mom or a dad who's struggling um, with a substance use disorder, um, often the sort of first kind of line of intervention is when um, child welfare gets involved. And that can be entirely disruptive. And it it was really, um, I think, startling to see how um, little was available to people who were struggling uh, in, in order to help keep families together, recognizing that the, you know, people wanted to be able to raise their kids. They wanted to be able to um, have positive lives. Um, and so it, it, it just helped me see that there was something more, something bigger out there that was problematic. Um, and it really got me interested in looking at systems and systems of care. I would imagine you embody some of the challenges and pain of your clients. Uh, how were you able to dissociate between your time at work and maybe your time at home? Uh, well, for me, I, I climbed. I climbed a lot. Uh, I would pretty much climb every day after work. Uh, and I met a community of people who um, on the weekends we would go out climbing. We did vacations together. We traveled uh, in Canada and Mexico, kind of all over, frankly, um, leveraging climbing as our way to sort of help fuel our own souls and, and kind of balance our own challenges. Um, so for me, that's, that's where I found my own way of self-care and, and um, nurturing. It might be a heavy question to kind of front load in this conversation, but what advice could you give to someone who's supporting a family member uh, going through addiction? I think the first thing is, is you got to help yourself. Um, if any, if we've learned anything, you know, like it's just like when you're on an airplane, you have to put your mask on before you can help your child put their mask on. And if you're not taking care of yourself, it becomes really hard to help someone else. And it is a really complicated and challenging um, condition that can take years, frankly, for folks to overcome, uh, often because of access challenges. And so I think, you know, building your own stamina and kind of taking care of your own um, health and mental health is really essential in these situations. Yeah. In your TEDx talk, you mentioned how running or sport could be perceived as an addiction as well, obviously yeah. a, an out, a substitute with more positive outcomes. But uh, how do you define addiction and how do you differentiate between maybe positive and negative ones, maybe? Yeah, I think this is one of those things where people, uh, well, let me just pause and say, I think 
in the industry right now, there's major debates. There was a New York Times article that recently came out, and they spent an awful lot of time talking about what is the definition of sobriety in the industry. People are trying to define recovery. And I think it's, frankly, a distraction from what is really what we need to be talking about, and that is that, that you know, our, our current approach is failing, and we need to do something different. And so I... Um, I think this idea of trading one addiction for another, um, you know, it's it's kind of a sexy conversation starter, but ultimately we're talking about people trying to take control of their lives. And this idea of taking a stepwise approach where even if you're trading addiction for, you know, a running addiction, for running maybe too much, um, I, it's a step in the right direction and helping people recognize that they're going in that right direction, but that in and of itself may not be the end point, I think is really important. And I think the other thing that is really um, essential to kind of wellness overall um, is this idea of community. And, you know, we see it in the 12 step world and we see it in other industries as well, where people will talk about helping others is actually the path forward to healing when you're so focused on yourself. So, you know, maybe the first step again is stopping the addiction, starting the running, and maybe you're running too much, but you're just thinking about yourself. In that moment, you you are not necessarily living your best life, but when you step back and you start to imagine your life in relation to those around you, how can you maybe help other people get into running? How do you run as part of a club? Now you move from the me to the we, and there's something really magical about that process. But I think this idea of getting stuck in the definition is maybe the wrong question, and we should be thinking about how are people taking those steps towards health and wellness, and how can we support them on that journey? So if it's if it's verbiage or terminology, is there is there really an end point or definitive end to recovery? You know, I don't, I don't think so. And I think that what we're really talking about is people living their best lives. And, and I, when I say there's not an end point, I don't mean like somebody is going to be addicted and they're going to be pained by addiction for the rest of their lives. We've seen millions of people who overcome their addictions to live very full and, and prospering lives. But life is a journey and wellness is a journey and there's no distinct end point. And so I think if we can look at it as a pathway that we're walking, where when we walk it together, we're stronger. And when we give back to one another and support others, we're stronger on that journey, that that helps to be a reframe instead of thinking of it as like a, a cure or a destination. Yeah, maybe it's a little bit of a reach, but I think of like spinal cord injury and how you could define recovery as being able to walk again, but there's so many people that thrive in the absence of being able to walk. And that's not yep. every, and that's not everyone's goal. So it's like, how can you define what the end point is if yeah. it's individual for each person? It's so true. And I think in the addiction recovery world, it's the same thing. Historically, we've defined success as sobriety and an abstinence-based sobriety in particular. But what we're seeing is that there are folks, again, who are taking these steps where maybe they're, you know, choosing to, or they're stepping away from their opioid addiction, but they're still smoking marijuana. And I think that's where that debate kind of comes into play around like, well, are they really sober? You know, and it's, it's, it's a waste of our time having that debate when really they've taken a step towards improving their life. And there's going to be many more steps to come in that journey. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned peer professionals um, and kind of this volunteer support network. Um, can you define maybe what the process of becoming a peer professional is? Is there some sort of onboarding or are there some sort of prerequisites that someone must meet? Yeah, I, you know, our kind of thoughts around this idea of peer professional has evolved significantly over the last five years. Um, I'll say that the Phoenix started out as an organization that provided services. We would hire instructors who would teach a class or they would take people hiking or camping. And what we realized is that sort of peer professional role, there were lots of people actually doing that same thing who were not employed. They were actually doing it because it was 
adding to their self-worth and it was helping them um, kind of strengthen their own recovery. And we started shifting away from thinking of our folks as peer professionals and really thinking them as peers helping peers and have since sort of um, thought about how can we mobilize a movement of millions of people who are helping one another. And so while I think like in the industry, there are jobs there. Are, you can be a recovery coach, for example, and that tends to be a peer professional role. And there are certifications that come along with that. But at the Phoenix, we've started shifting our thinking to how can we more mainstream healing through community sort of in a natural way and have modeled that off of, you know, other institutions and organizations that have had similar approaches. You know, if you look at the reach of 12 step or you look at churches, for example, like their communities are giving back to society in a number of different ways. And so how can we learn from those folks and start to shift our approach? So now we're really focusing again on this mobilization of millions and recognizing that in each individual is sort of the inherent capacity to give back and that we all have something to give. And that when we lean into that, that we can actually transform society in a much bigger way. Yeah. And you mentioned how helping others is a large part of that recovery yep. process. So it seems like it's a natural progression. Uh, maybe just to back up since um, I guess we didn't really touch on it initially for people who aren't familiar with the Phoenix, can you maybe give a little bit of background as to uh, the conception of it and kind of how it operates today? Sure, sure. So the Phoenix is a sober active community that is revolutionizing how people take control of their health and their lives. We are built on a community model and we leverage the inherent transformational um, kind of characteristics of meaningful activities, things like running or CrossFit, but also music and book clubs. Like this, there's something about coming together that really fuels the soul. And when you do it in that way where you're thinking about how can you be of service to others as much as you are in service to your own life and your own transformation, um, it's, it's pretty powerful. And the Phoenix launched about 17 years ago, almost 18 now. Um, uh, Scott Strode is the, the executive director and um, my co-founder. He came at it from, uh, he was a person in recovery who was thinking about his own recovery journey and how he could take what he had um, been successful doing and share that with others. And he and I were climbing partners. And so as we started climbing, I would be thinking about like, how could we mainstream some of the things that we do in the clinical world? What's the science that we could leverage towards that, that would actually bolster our success in helping people. And so it became this really interesting collaboration and um, over the years has grown now to where we've served over 350,000 people and are really, you know, focusing next on um, what we call a, an empowerment platform where we're bringing in, you know, um, partners to expand our impact, recognizing what the Phoenix does, we do extremely well, but that people need what they need when they need it. And if we can help them access other types of services and supports that we can actually have a much bigger impact. Absolutely. Alcoholics Anonymous, Anonymous was what founded in the 1930s or maybe around that time. Um, what have they done well and where have they fallen short and kind of what aspects of previously existing programs did you guys adopt and yeah. which, how did you kind of carve out your own lane? Yeah. You know, I think AA and all the many, many different sort of um, peer support groups that have sort of kind of spun off or spawned from the 12 steps, um, they're, they've changed a lot of lives and they're a remarkably powerful healing modality for um, a community that is not clinically based. And I think there's something, um, like I, I really wanna praise kind of the impact that they've had. I think what we have realized over the years is that there's just no one right way to recover and to live your best life. And that there's a need to provide alternatives and options to people so that they can find what resonates most with them. 
And I think there are aspects of the 12 steps that, that just don't sit well with some folks. Um, some of the things I've heard about is, you know, folks who aren't interested in the sort of spiritual pathway that the 12 steps follows. Now, it doesn't mean that what they're doing doesn't work and that it isn't for the right, you know, the right kind of group of folks, but there's got to be other things out there. And I think we've seen that sort of spin up over the last decade in particular with different types of organizations like the Phoenix starting to evolve. Um, and so 12 step, one of the things that they do really well is it, it is a community and it is a consistent place where people feel safe and supported. I think the, um, the sponsor is something that has been um, proven scientifically to be um, exceedingly helpful for people. Having that one person who you can go to no matter what, day or night, there's something really powerful about that. And then I think the thing that is most remarkable about 12-step is the access. With 12-step, you can go anywhere in the world and find a meeting. You can find it online. You can find a meeting for men, for women, one that's talking about the big book or about how to cope. Um, there's all kinds of different topics. And so they're really meeting a lot of people um, where they're at and where they need to be. And so there's some real remarkable advantages there. And for the Phoenix, I think some of the things that really resonated with us around the learning from 12-step was the power of people helping people. And this idea that, um, you know, we, we have to make it accessible. And so what can we learn from 12-step that maybe the Phoenix can do differently? Well, we, we don't care if you have a religious preference or not. You can just show up and anybody is welcomed. And because we're leveraging this, this volunteer strategy as well, what you see is people are kind of finding what works for them and their communities. Because when you share what works for you and what you're passionate about, maybe it's art, maybe it's running, you can feel that and you can sense that. And it's in those moments where people can come together. And then I'll say from the clinical realm, one of the things that I thought a lot about when we were designing the Phoenix is this idea of sort of parallel play. I worked a lot with kids. And if anybody has ever worked with kids, you know, like you sit down and you ask them a question, even if it's simple, like how was school today? They'll be fine, like fine, great, it was fine. And then they kind of glaze over, right? But when you're in the car listening to Pearl Jam as you drive down the road, or you're playing basketball or Uno, like in those moments, kids have the ability to be vulnerable. And so when we were building the Phoenix, we thought, well, why is that just something we do with kids? Like, why can't we leverage those same sorts of meaningful activities with our adults and see them, you know, create that space where they can feel safe first? Because trust has to be there at the essence of it all. And so with running and CrossFit, you're out doing your thing, you have your personal goals, you're running alongside someone else. But over time, as you do that, you build trust with the person who's running with you. And in those moments, you can say, I had a really hard time yesterday, or I'm having a really hard time today. I really feel like I want to drink. And that person can say, hey, let's do this. Or what about that? Or have you tried this treatment? Or let, you know, maybe go and volunteer. They can, because they know you, they can shape their response to what is right for you. And so anyway, I think I would say 12-step has a lot to offer, but so does the clinical world. And so we really lean in on relationships and these sorts of ideas of these activities becoming a place where people can build trust. Yeah, one of the ways to kind of rewrite the narrative, and I'm, I'm more so in the disability space, is like through that shared interest and through that like shared recreation. Um, yeah. When you're when you're in environments and you see someone in a wheelchair doing the same activities as you, you you see the wheelchair a little less, or you don't see it as yeah. as much of a barrier as you might have beforehand. So there's something definitely powerful about recreation and fitness. And when you mentioned the peer professionals, I kind of thought of like the sponsor type of thing. So it's that community and having that relationship. The relationship seemed to be key. Uh, there's more than 20 million people that struggle with addiction. And uh, I think the stats that you uh, had referenced were about a half that go to treatment um, stay sober, but about three quarters of those who participate in Phoenix's programs do. Um, yeah. Why do you think then that this isn't readily adopted everywhere or why isn't this like the new standard? 
Yeah, and I'll back up and say too, and maybe in the data that we shared over, but um, stats have really changed. Uh, yeah. A year or two ago, SAMHSA released some new stats, and it looks like about 48 million people are struggling with alcohol and drugs, and less than 6.5% of those folks are able to access care. And so the challenge here is that the system of care, and, and let's layer onto this that there's a talent shortage in the treatment industry where they can't find enough clinicians to actually do the work. So it, you can imagine that even if we paid double, we couldn't actually scale that approach to address the issues that are at hand. Um, and so I think the, the challenge for the Phoenix in being adopted more broadly is that what we're talking about is really simple, but it's not easy. When you talk about connection being the answer to some of society's greatest challenges, you know, Vivek Murthy, our Surgeon General, recently released a report calling uh, or suggesting that we're facing an epidemic of loneliness, right? That loneliness, that disconnect is actually the problem we should be solving for. And addiction, mental health challenges, increased rates of suicide, violence, crime, all of these things are frankly symptoms of that underlying condition. And so when the Phoenix is talking about connection being the way forward, it's much like going to the doctor when you're dealing with a um, diabetes or a heart condition and having your doctor say, well, diet, you know, change your diet and exercise, right? Like these things are really simple but our society is so built on like, well, there's got to be a pill for it or a quick fix. And really, this is up to us. And so there's this cultural shift that has to happen where people recognize that actually we have the power to change a lot of these things. And it's up to us to create these environments that are nurturing, to you know, get active, to connect with one another. Because, frankly, the answer to a lot of these challenges have been hiding in plain sight all along. And again, they're simple, but not easy because our society is not, um, they're not looking for that as an answer. You know, it's really hard to get up and exercise, you know, in the morning or to reach out to that friend um, and, and have a conversation when we are taught time and time again that we have to take care of ourselves. How do you determine kind of going off of that? looking for a pharmacological intervention, how do you determine whether someone needs uh, that type of intervention versus a more active personal yeah. relationship sort of invention, intervention? So I think that like, there, I mean, there are, there are a lot of people who need pharmaceutical sort of interventions for their mental health and their wellness who are at heightened risk. I think the, the challenge here is that when everybody is going through that system, the folks who need it most may not actually be able to access it. And so the Phoenix and our approach around leveraging community and meaningful activities in an environment that's psychologically safe, it's something that can really offset that demand. And you know, imagine a day when the vast majority of people can build a community and find wellness, and then those folks who really need those added services can access them. And so I, I don't ever wanna say that, you know, Phoenix is a treatment or it's going to replace that system. It's just not. I mean, there are things that we don't know, but we do know is that it's a very low risk, high reward sort of approach that can have a mass effect on society and frankly redefine or kind of reshape the way in which our treatment industry works. You mentioned psychologically safe during that portion. That's an area that you guys are researching, correct? Yep. Uh, what it, what does that work kind of entail or consist of? Yeah, so psychological safety is a concept that actually evolved out of um, um, business. Um, there was a time when folks over at Google were trying to figure out, like, how do I optimize my team's performance? And they started, you know, mucking around with lots of different experiments to figure out what that was. And what they ended up finding is that when folks who were part of a team could show up to that team and be who they were, perfectly imperfect. And they felt safe and supported so that they could take risks and speak their mind and offer um, insights that those were the teams that frankly were most effective. 
And when we started building the Phoenix, we immediately and instinctively, and I think it comes from, you know, this idea of understanding that trauma is often underneath an addiction. We really leaned into this idea of nurturing community as a, a aspect of the organization that we thought was going to be really critical. And over the years, we started looking at this idea of psychological safety that again came out from some of this research that Google had done. And we started building our own metrics to evaluate the role of psychological safety in our community and how that impacts people overall. And what we found is that when folks felt psychologically safe, they, they had more hope, they, their mental health improved, their, um, their physical health improved, and they were significantly more likely to keep coming back. And so we're really kind of advancing that lane of research because we think that there's something there. You know, in the therapeutic environment when I was a clinician, it's all about creating a nurturing environment where people can be, you know, feel safe and take risks. It's really applying that thing that we knew in the clinical world that they learned at Google in the business world to how we operate as an organization and a community. But if we could take that and frankly, you know, align it to all the other types of human service industries, you know, everything from schools to job training programs to, you know, gyms, you know, I, th I think we would see some pretty interesting outcomes um, and a ripple effect of that psychological safety, not just in improving people's, you know, one domain of outcome that that particular organization is trying to achieve, but actually more broadly their, their life and their health and their wellness more, again, more broadly. Is the stigma associated with addiction one of the things that compromises psychological safety? I think it, it definitely compromises it at a societal level. And, you know, what we find at the Phoenix, because we do create this environment where the moment you walk in the door, you feel welcomed, that people come into the Phoenix and, um, and that stigma is sort of flipped. I'll give you an example. We had a young man who came to the Phoenix um, in a few years ago, frankly. He was a college-age kid, and he made the decision to get sober, and somebody told him about the Phoenix. He walked in. He did his first um, event. I'm pretty sure it was CrossFit. And as he was walking out the door, he asked if he could buy one of our, our T-shirts that says sober on it. And one of the other uh, folks who were there for the class said, wow, dude, that's really brave of you. Like, you just got sober and you're going to put on a sober shirt and go out and like share it. And he's like, well, why wouldn't I? Why wouldn't I? In that environment, he realized like very quickly, like, it's okay to be sober. And so why should I be defined by how people... Um, outside would be judging me. And I think it's having more of those experiences, the larger an organization like the Phoenix gets, and we're not the only organization that's really kind of flipping the script on stigma, but the larger an organization like the Phoenix gets, the more it's going to be easy for folks, the more, you know, musicians and um, sports figures who come out as being sober, the more that we start understanding that, you know, lots of people have struggled with a substance use disorder, the easier it's going to be. So I do see us as making progress. And, you know, one of the things that we judge our success on, frankly, and this is maybe not the most optimal way to judge your success, is that there are hundreds, if not thousands of people out there with Phoenix tattoos. So if you're willing to put this on your body and say, like, actually, I'm claiming my health and I don't care, I think that's a pretty, pretty interesting signal that we're going in the right direction. Absolutely. And it just reiterates to the person how important it is. They have that visual re reminder, um, yeah. like I'm committed to this, but um, what is the biggest misconception that people have about addiction? Uh, I think that the biggest misconception is that it's an individual's problem. Again, if we look at kind of what is the root cause here, this idea of disconnect, blaming a person for their addiction, I think is, is a huge miss. You know, there are people who are numbing out in an array of different ways, you know, whether it's somebody who um, has an evolving eating disorder or they become distant and a bit antisocial or people who are overworking. You know, these are all things people do to kind of cope with the stress in their lives. 
And so it's really an indicator, again, of that kind of cultural societal challenge. And so it's really important not to just blame the individual. Uh, And the fact that the system of care is so flawed, again, clinical treatment works. I'm a clinician. I believe in it. But if you can't access it, it frankly just doesn't matter. And so we have to stop looking at the individual as the problem and look at the culture and the systems that we have available for people. Is there evidence on like nature versus nurture? Oh my gosh. I don't, I think that's probably a question for someone else. I think, you know, if you, if you look at the science, there's, uh, there's evidence for both. And so I don't, um, I wouldn't be able to say to you, it's, you know, this percentage of people have and are naturally inclined to it versus society. Um, but I do think that we all are inclined to find ways out of pain and what that ends up looking like may be different, but that's really more what it's about is a way to cope with the pain, the stress, the challenges of society, of kind of our lives, um, more so than the drug itself. Yeah. Um, are all volunteers, um, individuals who are in recovery or, um, if someone isn't in recovery, do you find that they're able to relate as well or be as effective as a peer? Um, yeah, we've actually done a little bit of looking at this as well. And, um, a number of years ago, we realized that there were volunteers that we had working for the Phoenix who were not people who had a background, um, having been addicted to an alcohol or a drug themselves, but frankly, were having tremendous impact in the, in their programs were having tremendous impact on those who were attending. And so over the years, we've really evolved to create a more inclusive community. And we think of the Phoenix as something for people who have struggled with alcohol and drugs or mental health challenges, but frankly, for anyone who's looking for nurturing community. And I'll give you another example. Um, there's a young woman who was coming to our programming in uh, Boston, and she had a family member who had struggled with alcohol and drugs and actually lost his life. It was her father. And she came to the Phoenix because the Phoenix was a reminder that not everyone had to lose their lives. And it gave her hope. And it also provided a place where she felt um you know, meaningful connection and and hope and and kind of like could recharge her own mental health. Similarly, we've had lots of veterans who come to the Phoenix who have struggled with trauma, who maybe never even struggled with addiction, but in coming to the Phoenix, they find this ability to be of service as a way to help advance their meaning and purpose in life. And so, people are opting into the Phoenix who've never had a substance use disorder at all. And so similarly in our volunteer, um, in our volunteers, we understand that everyone has a role to play and we, we welcome all. So if you want to start volunteering, we'll get you signed up today. Do you, do you have to train volunteers in any way? I know like sometimes with our like special Olympic volunteers, it's important to share some aspects of etiquette and just language and yeah. communication strategies that you use when communicating with someone with a disability. Are there specific like aspects of etiquette that you try to communicate with them? Yeah, I, there are a couple of things that we do. I think the first one for the entire community, but it is also extremely relevant for our volunteers is that we have an ethos and that ethos really kind of describes what is um, valued at the Phoenix and what we strive for. Um, that, I, that understanding that everybody um, is welcome, for example, is at the heart of that ethos. And then for volunteers specifically, we do have some videos that we ask our volunteers to watch and kind of get signed off on. We ask them to attend a Phoenix event so they can see for themselves what it's like and what it, you know, what, how, start to imagine what they might do and how they might lead their different classes or activities or ways in which they support and then we offer additional training kind of along the way. There's times where we might um, invite our volunteers to, we, we ha, um, had a, a conference, we called it RISE. We invited about 150 volunteers to that event to help them figure out how to do things like social media and advertising of their own programs. And, and we also talked about how to have difficult conversations. And so 
we layer in the video content with the actual training with this sort of overarching um, ethos as a way to help kind of set expectations for what is acceptable in the environment. Absolutely. Yeah, I really liked in your in your talk, your TEDx talk, you, you mentioned how people are not their disease. It's a piece of who they are, but that's it. And kind of the same way with disability and the evolution of language over time from identity first to people first language, yeah. person first language. Um, that goes a long way, I guess, in terms of rewriting the narrative and how people understand and, and see disability or see addiction. Has that conversation around language evolved over the last five or 10 years? What are the biggest like shifts yeah. that you've seen? Yeah, I think it is constantly evolving. And I think, you know, I, at the heart of it is that sort of person first language. This, you know, like, you know, people not labeling people as addicts you know, but people have had a struggle and they've struggled maybe with a particular substance, but we really avoid the, that sort of, um, language that perpetuates the stigma. Yeah. I mean, I think that the idea that, you know, behind our ethos is really anchored in that language and we offer some of the examples there. And then frankly, the kind of the trying to integrate the science in real time. So, We've worked really closely with folks like John Kelly over at the um, Recovery Research Institute at Harvard, and he's done some studies on the different, um, you know, language and how it can be seen as stigmatizing and, and leveraging more empowering language. And so we bring that information to our volunteers and to our staff as a way to help empower them as well. If I look at like one of my missions of hopefully creating a lot of fitness environments where people with disabilities are supported, as you attempt to grow Phoenix to more chapters, more locations, yeah. how do you ensure quality is maintained or are there any consistent like sort of like franchise type of model things that you adopt? Uh, what's the process of kind of vetting people that want to start programs? Yeah, this is something we think about all the time and we're really you know leaning in on some of the learning that folks from like airbnb and uber have used in their processes because if we can get real-time feedback from folks who are attending these different activities um, that helps us ensure kind of that the environment is really representing phoenix's commitment to psychological safety inclusivity um, and that the activities themselves are safe and supportive. Uh, and so I think that's, as we've scaled, models that we've really um, focused on and tried to learn from. Yeah, that's a good good idea. Just the, the consistent feedback from the users uh, yep. is a good way to ensure that you're uh, hitting the mark there. I was told that one of your focuses is on expanding uh, the Phoenix's partnerships, specifically in kind of music and innovation. Um, what direction do you see that going? Yeah, I'll speak to music first and then I'll get into innovation second. I think with the music industry, you know, what we know to be true is that music is really a representation of culture. And there's an opportunity, I think, in the music industry right now where more and more artists are starting to be vocal about their struggles and their challenges. You know, they've experienced um, exponential loss um, folks in the music industry are significantly more likely to struggle with a substance use disorder, with mental health challenges, and frankly, overdose and die than the general population. And there's a, just an increased awareness, I think, amongst the industry that something has to shift. And so we've been partnering with a number of different organizations, um, as well as different festivals and venues around the country to start to um, look at the the sort of sober, inclusive, and recovery supportive practices that they're employing in their environments, uh, both for the folks who are, you know, back of house, so artists and people who work in the industry, but also for fans and looking at the environments. And I think that there's a, you know, it's a long road, frankly, um, to evolving, you know, and supporting the music industry and in the direction in which we hear they want to go um, because, you know, the industry is so tied um, to revenue generated from alcohol distribution. And so I think the more that we see, you know, um, 
zero proof beverages and NA beverages um, evolving in popularity and accessibility, I think the easier some of the shift is going to be. But we really see this as an opportunity to partner with the industry to start to change the narrative and start to realign expectations in a way that are going to be more inclusive and supportive for all Americans. Uh, because I know for myself as a mom and wanting to be able to bring my daughter to enjoy music that even if I wanted to, to have alcohol there, I, I don't necessarily want it to be in my face or, you know, all encompassing. And I think that that, that is something that um, a lot of Americans think about, not just folks who are thinking about um, how they're going to create a sober, uh, sober, safe and supportive environment. And so for the Phoenix, we're leveraging music to um, provide programming. So we have some songwriting sorts of workshops. We offer uh, sort of meetups around music. We're hosting large events, um, partnering with an organization called Secret Dance Addiction to host these major kind of dance events around the country. Because dance like fitness or you know music like fitness is intrinsically transformational for people. The science tells us that it improves your mental health, it improves your wellness, it improves your physical health. And so we're really leaning into that both as a program that we can offer um, through our volunteers, but also as a strategy to partner with the music industry more broadly so that they can lead the change they want to see. Not that we want to see, but they're the ones who are leading it and we can come alongside and support them. Does, does the evidence show that people are starting to drink and use substances at a younger age? And like, is it, is it becoming more prevalent? It, it feels like anecdotally that it is, but I don't have anything to really back that up. Uh, I think with the legalization of marijuana, like alcohol, it just opens the door to, if it's fine for somebody who's over 21, why wouldn't it be fine for me? And so I don't doubt, and I think the evidence does show that there are, is a, an increase. I think the biggest challenge around, you know, um, kind of alcohol and drug use is really the kind of the, the norms that are uh, teaching our kids that, that if you have a stressful day, you should go grab a beer with a friend instead of actually going for a run, right? Similarly, with the drugs, I think it's the same thing. When you're experiencing pain, this will help to numb and disconnect. And so I think kids are stressed more than they've ever been. Rates of anxiety are on the rise. Social media is perpetuating, you know, eating disorders amongst our young women. You know, I think that there, there's a lot there that is really challenging. And if they're not reaching for, for alcohol or drugs, they're going to be reaching for something else that's going to help them feel better. Yeah, absolutely. What influenced you to become a clinician in the first place? Whew, that's a big one. Um, <laughs> I grew up in a home where I had a mom who both, uh, she struggled with alcohol use herself. She drank every single day. Um, but when she wasn't drinking, she would get up and she would be there for us in a way that I still can't understand why or how. You know, she made sure that we sold more cookies than any other girl in the Girl Scouts troop. She showed up for every one of my volleyball games, um, but at night she medicated and and she had a pretty extensive trauma history that I learned about kind of over time. And so I think growing up in that environment, I, I, I just wanted to figure out how to help other people because she was always helping other people. She would bring people home. She used to call it bringing home strays. And, you know, she, you know, her, this woman from work who had been beat up by her husband, this other woman who her and her kids were homeless, like they were always there. So I had these influences, I think, in my life that just got me constantly thinking about how to help. And I started working with um, other kids. I was a, a peer helper in my school when I was, uh, I think, a sophomore or junior in high school. I joined the, um, um, Delinquency Prevention Commission in my town to help kids who are incarcerated before I was even uh, 17. And so I think it is something that was rooted in me deeply and um, something I couldn't, frankly, step away from. But I always had, um, I, want, I wanted to understand why people did what they did, kind of what they needed, and I wanted to figure out how I could help. 
if the one thing I learned from my dad was that he he solved problems all the time. And we used to play these, you know, logic games as something we just did for fun. And so for me, this idea of leveraging this like problem solving kind of way of thinking to help society and people heal was just something I couldn't escape. It called to me. Why do some people adopt the behaviors of their family and others are able to kind of separate themselves from that environment? I think it's, you know, there's more to us than just what we experience in our family. And, you know, there's um, uh, this concept of an enlightened witness where, you know, there's a moment in time where you have that person who just offers a slightly different perspective or they see you differently than your family did and they can offer a reframe. I think there's lots of those moments in life where things just start to shift. And I remember for myself, you know, going over to a boyfriend's house in college and his parents, they were making dinner together and they loved each other. It was so obvious. And they, they set the table and there were flowers and you felt special, right? Like you felt special. And that was just very different than the home that I had grown up in. My, my family loved me, but it was, a, I think, a constant tension when, you know, my dad had OCD, my mom struggled with depression, like people were just sort of getting by. And I think in those moments, you start to be exposed to things you never thought of, things that you may choose to adopt for yourself. And so I think, you know, the, the role that whether it's a teacher or a neighbor or others play in our lives is critical. And then being able to see kind of how other people choose to live their lives, because you can't imagine it if you don't see it and you, or if you don't hear it, or if you don't have that person who's standing up for you or helping you. And frankly, every kid deserves that. Um, and it's why we have to think about ourselves more of a community than you know, just what's right in front of us. Yeah, I think you'd be hard pressed to not have someone in your life who has struggled mm -hmm. um, with something like this. So I'm sure everyone can relate in some way, maybe to encourage people to get involved. Can you highlight a memorable moment over the last five or 10 years or something that really sticks out as to the impact that the Phoenix has? I'm sure it's yeah. not just one. I'm sure there's, there's not just not one just case. One. Um, <laughs> but. I can definitely come up with a, a really good example. And I'm hoping that we can actually chat about the technology thing again. I'll circle back to that because I have something really exciting to share there. Yeah. Absolutely. But if I think about um, a specific moment or an example of a person, um, we were in Denver, Colorado, and there was this gentleman who had been, um, frankly, living in the alleyway behind the building for quite some time. There's a lot of folks who struggle with homelessness in and around kind of where our building is there. And there was a day where he took a risk and he opened the door and he came in. Um, you know, when folks are homeless, they don't have the right shoes to do a CrossFit workout. Their clothes uh, may be really uncomfortable. I think he had some work boots on. People very quickly scooped him up they got him shoes, they got him clothes, and they created a, you know, they, they welcomed him back. They said, are we gonna see you tomorrow? So he came in, he was met with that kind of psychological safety we're talking about. He was welcomed the moment he walked in the door. He was treated with respect and dignity that he deserved. He had a fun, positive experience, and he came back. And he came back and he started really getting into this thing called Olympic lifting. For whatever reason, that was his jam. So fast forward about six months and we're standing around at a high top table. A bunch of us were in town for some meetings and he came in and he walked over to the table and Scott and I were there and a number of other folks. And he said, I went to a job fair today and I got a job offer. I haven't worked in 10 years. And he said, I know it's going to sound crazy, but the reason I did that was because I realized if I could do Olympic lifting, I could do anything. And it was like, in his mind, 
it was the Olympic lifting, right? Like, and it was, it really was. But if he didn't have the community and the psychological safety, he never would have succeeded at that Olympic lifting. And so I think it's moments like that that happen every single day when you realize that there is more to community connection and meaningful activities than people attribute. And if that's all they really thought about, if they, everybody stopped for a moment and thought about like, how can I get a little more connected? How can I ensure that people feel welcomed and supported in any engagement that I have with them? That could go a really long way. Yeah, I had jotted down employment and I wasn't sure where exactly to kind of weave it in. But like, I, I was curious if there was any um, like step towards employment for participants or um, whether you were able to support that process in any way as well. You know, we don't necessarily have a formal process for that. We did play around um, with doing our own sort of um, job training type programming. But what we realized is that it actually was more effective to just get a lot of folks volunteering. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. I'll use CrossFit as an example because they've been an extraordinary partner for us. They've been, you know, we were, I think we're in about 140 gyms around the country, our, the Phoenix programming is. But the, the CrossFit um, um, organization has given us a lot of uh, uh, like level one certifications. So we have folks who come in and they wanna start volunteering. We're actually able to refer them for a free cert. And then they could come back and lead CrossFit programming within their community. And so this is just one example of ways in which people who maybe they're fresh out of being incarcerated or they're new to recovery and just trying to build back their lives where they can get practice doing it as a volunteer, but they also build certifications where it actually can ladder up to employment. And we see that happening in you know a lot of our yoga partnerships. We see that kind of in lots of different lanes. And that's just one example. Yeah, there's another cool program in Boston called Inner City Weightlifting that you might yep. be familiar with. And John does uh, something very similar where uh, he takes formerly incarcerated individuals and, and gets them into a position to be employed and work as trainers. Yeah. So that's uh, always been a, uh, a program that I've really admired. But can any gym become a Phoenix chapter? Or does it have to be a CrossFit affiliate? No. any. So Phoenix is not just fitness. It really is anything. And we don't have chapters per se. But we have volunteers who are creating community around the country and frankly starting to be global. And so if you are someone who likes camping, you can raise your hand, become a volunteer and take a bunch of people camping. If you want to teach music classes, you can teach music classes. If you want to lead um, CrossFit, you can lead CrossFit. But it really is what is most meaningful for you and how can we support you in taking that gift and sharing it with other people? And so really there are kind of innumerable ways that people can give back and really start to build um, their own path. And so for gym settings, a lot of times it helps when the manager or the uh, owner is bought in. And so it could be a yoga studio, um, you know, a regular gym, CrossFit gym, you name it. Yeah, because I'm just thinking like I own a gym here in Lancaster, Mass, and then also passionate about running, um, yep. marathoning, et cetera. And I just, so if I were to reach out to you and say, Hey, I don't have any immediate community of individuals in recovery, but I have this facility, I have this expertise. What's the next step? Do you have, do you have people that you reach out to? Like what, what's kind of the process to get that ball rolling? Yeah, there's a lot of different ways it can go. So if you yourself want to volunteer, then we would just get you trained and you could start and we come alongside you with marketing materials. We have staff that kind of start to get people connected. We post it and advertise it so that people now know that you're running these activities. So we help drive people to the activities that you're offering. If you want someone to come alongside you as a volunteer, because you're not the person who's actually going to do it, but you want to open up your facility, in the So in our app, you can go to the volunteer side and choose to volunteer now. And inside that app, after you go through the basic video training, is what we call it's a meetup. So you can connect with other volunteers and 
then, you know, you can say, hey, I need a volunteer who can help teach whatever, or I'd like to have, you know, open my space. We could have CrossFit or yoga or fitness, whatever, you know, like, is there anybody out there? And so we create that environment where people just raise their hand. Um, and so there's those two ways. One way is sort of more organically through the app. And the other way is by partnering with the volunteer coordinators in your region to kind of identify and pull people in. Awesome. Great to know. Uh, you want to circle back to technology and kind of innovations in that space? Yeah. So this is the thing that, frankly, I'm more excited about than anything else I've ever done in my life. Um, during the pandemic, we within 48 hours launched virtual programming and realized that we needed like that technology was going to be the door opener to increasing access for people to access not just the Phoenix, but a lot of different types of services and supports. And so we built the Phoenix first, um, our app for the Phoenix to be able to serve our members, serve our volunteers. It was very practical. What we realized is that the same thing that we were needing, lots of other nonprofits were also needing. So we're now creating these microsites within the Phoenix app so that another organization, whether it's a job training organization or um, housing support organization or an alumni group that's trying to reach their constituencies, these other organizations can come onto the app and be able to have their own microsite and right now it's free of charge. We are wanting to ensure access and our goal is to keep things, um, keep money as uh, kind of low a restriction as possible. So by creating these microsites, you know, we have organizations like um, She Recovers. We also have another organization um, called CCAR, Kinetic Community for Addiction Recovery, who does a lot of recovery coaching. So you come in the Phoenix door and you can actually access these other partner organizations or you can access the Phoenix community more generally. But it creates this broader community of care now where people can access what they need when they need it. And so you may be on a wait list that's going to take you two weeks to get into that treatment center. But in the meantime, you can access all of these other things to support you in your recovery and frankly, in your mental health challenges as well. And I'm really excited about it. We have, we've been piloting it for the last several months. We've got, uh, I think, 10 to 15 pilot organizations on there. We have a goal of getting 150 organizations on there by the end of the year. But what we think is possible here is that we can create a pathway, a single point of entrance through which people can access pretty much anything that they need to you know, get themselves going in the direction that is right for them, recognizing there's no one right way or one exact pathway. And by providing that access, I think it's gonna be game-changing for people who have been struggling. So is that just in the App Store under the Phoenix? The Phoenix, yep. Yeah. And then- You can also any... access it through our website. And an organization that wants to get involved with that would just reach out to you generically? Yep. Yep, yeah, they can just shoot over an email. Um, they can email me if they hear this podcast. So it's Jackie, J-A-C-K-I at thephoenix.org. And I'm happy to kind of get their um, request for being a part of the app kind of over to the right folks. Perfect. Yeah, we'll include the app download in the show notes and we can include your email as well in the show notes if people want right. to reach out directly, obviously, as well as the website and all those um, generic links as well. Um, maybe as a, as a question that we ask, and we, we've kind of already touched upon it, but we finish, we wrap up most of the podcast kind of with the question of, um, what do you think needs to be done to make fitness more accessible for people? And that could be in my population, it's a lot of individuals with intellectual and physical disabilities, but it yeah. could be people with mental health challenges as well. You know, I think it just, I, I'd hammer home on this idea of psychological safety you know, it's something you strive for. I know Brene Brown talks about creating brave spaces because to ensure psychological safety is a really hard thing. But if we're all striving to create an environment where everybody feels welcomed and they feel empowered to take risks and try new things, and I'm sure you've seen it in the disability space as well. You know, if somebody, when people come in, they're scared. They don't even know if they can do something. And when you can kind of open the environment and create this nurturing kind of environment where they can take the chance and try that thing, 
it, it's just going to transform their lives. And people can do the most amazing things when they have that psychological safety. So in terms of accessibility and, um, you know, inclusivity, I think psychological safety is the magic in the middle. Yeah, we talk about how, like, my gym was opened initially for my Special Olympic athletes, but an unintended consequence has been a lot of people perceive our business as empathetic and welcoming. And there's yeah. a lot of people that probably never would have stepped foot in a gym with free weights and turf and uh, sleds and stuff like that if, if they hadn't had that outward facing public perception of inclusivity. So um, whether people want to train a lot of athletes with disabilities or not, I think kind of adopting those premises and those principles uh, opens you up to a lot more potential customers, clients than uh, you would otherwise. So, um, Jackie, it was awesome to hear about the organization. Um, always admired from afar, so it was nice to get a, a closer up uh, view into it. We'll include all the show, uh, all the relevant links in the show notes so people can learn more about it and reach out to you directly. But uh, thanks so much for your time. We'll include the TED Talk as well because uh, I really enjoyed listening to that a couple of times in anticipation of this conversation. So, again, Jackie, thank you. Thank you.